That is a beautiful, tender picture of God's care for his children as a loving Heavenly Father. He is the perfect Father, and in that we can rejoice. Amen? If you would turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 18. We'll read this chapter in a few moments. When we speak about influence, we recognize there are many types of influences around us, influences that perhaps uh, have some impact on us. And many types of influence which we can yield ourselves. Negatively, uh, some may influence others through fear, through intimidation, through bribes, through coercion or manipulation. Or just generally, you may think of social pressure or peer pressure or family expectations or cultural influence. And of course, there are many types of positive influence as well. Praise can be something that can influence us. Incentives, rewards, respect, love, persuasion, certainly the, the influence of example or the influence of education and directed teaching. And the list could go on. We could give many types of influence. And when you find that you have a certain type of influence with someone or with some group of people, the ability to move them in a particular way, you realize that that's a very important opportunity and responsibility that you have. Today on Father's Day, I'd like to consider the influence of fathers on their families from the text of Exodus 18. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, very uh, well-known verse, contains a command and a warning about a negative type of influence that fathers may have, and a positive command for how they ought to influence their children. You know the verse, perhaps, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is influence on a family which honors God, bringing children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And in Exodus 18, we see, I believe, two fathers wielding Influence which God has given them for his honor. You may have a title over Exodus 18, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. The two main characters, of course, in this chapter are Jethro, the priest of Midian, whose daughter Moses married when he was in exile away from the land of Egypt before he came to deliver the people from Egypt. Jethro and Moses. For a little background, the book of Exodus begins with an introduction to the people of Israel, God's chosen people, as we left them at the end of the book of Genesis, multiplying in favor in Egypt under the the favor of Joseph, who was the, you could say, the prime minister, the grand vizier in In Egypt, but in Exodus, a new Pharaoh rises who doesn't know Joseph and he oppresses the people of Israel. And they're increasing in Egypt, they're enslaved. Uh, 
And we meet Moses as a baby who is hidden. He's raised in Pharaoh's household by Pharaoh's daughter. He fears God. He forsakes all of this power. And eventually God commissions him to lead Israel. He encounters God in the wilderness near Sinai. God commissions him to lead Israel out of Egypt in the first four chapters of Exodus. But then in Exodus chapter 5, down through chapter 13, we see the interaction of Moses and Pharaoh and the ten plagues, which are famous, of course, the ten plagues that God brought on Egypt in order to get glory over Egypt and before his people and to release, to deliver his people Israel from Egypt. But then, of course, in chapter 14, Pharaoh changes his mind and he pursues Israel and God delivers Israel through the Red Sea on dry ground and destroys Pharaoh and his army by bringing the sea down on them. And in chapter 15, Israel celebrates God's deliverance. But then very soon, even in that same chapter, chapter 15, 16, and 17, the people start grumbling. They have no water. And God provides them water. They have no food. They want to go back to Egypt. God provides manna and then meat and then water again from the rock. And then God rescues them from Amalek, who attacks them while they're vulnerable in an account where Moses is raising his hands and they achieve success. And as he lowers them, they start to get overwhelmed. But God, God, our banner, it says in Exodus 17, delivers them and promises to blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And then in chapter 19, the chapter after our text this morning, the people are just about to meet God at Sinai in all of his glory, veiled as it is in a cloud, and thunder and lightning. God is awesome and overwhelming. And he commands the people to purify themselves for their protection, lest they die in the presence of his holiness. And then in chapter 20, of course, God begins to give the law to Moses, starting with the ten words, the ten commandments as we know them. And right in the midst of all of this activity, we have the account of Moses and his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, a neighboring nation. Of the 21 occurrences of this Hebrew word, father-in-law, in in the Old Testament, 18 of them in the Old Testament refer to the father-in-law of Moses. And 13 of them, 13 of the 21, are in this chapter alone. There's a strong emphasis on this relationship in this chapter here. In fact, we see here two men acting as fathers, acting as men, acting as leaders, to spread the knowledge of, of God. And the title this morning you may have seen is Spreading the Knowledge of God at Home. That'll be our primary application. Aside from that emphasis on the relationship between Moses and Jethro, a father-in-law to son-in-law, you'll notice as we read there are a number of repeated words and, and concepts in each half of the chapter that really help us I believe will help us understand what the chapter is about. In the first half, you'll notice six occurrences of the word deliverance. The first 12 verses are taken up with God's deliverance of his people Israel. And then in verses 13 through 27, you'll see many references to the law. Moses giving judgment based on the law, settling disputes over the law or according to the law, and teaching 
God's statutes and laws. There are a number of references to the law. And based on the activity of these men, in relation to the living God, particularly his deliverance and his righteous judgments, his righteous law, how they conduct themselves and the actions that they take. We may take this lesson by their example that godly fathers use the influence which God gives them to spread the knowledge of God. Godly fathers use the influence which God gives them to spread the knowledge of God. Fathers who fear the Lord, they understand God's right to be worshipped, as we see Moses and Jethro doing here. They themselves worship God as he deserves, and then they seek to convince others to do so likewise. This is the kind of influence that fathers can have. And I trust this will be an encouragement to all of us who wield any influence not just fathers, to do so for God's glory, to spread the knowledge of him. So you'll see Moses and Jethro in the first half, fellowshipping together, worshiping together. Jethro seeking out the knowledge of God. Moses speaking of the knowledge of God. They have this family reunion in the first seven verses. And then they're rejoicing over God's goodness to Israel in verses 8 through 12. But then in the second half of the chapter, Moses is working. Jethro is counseling. Moses is is judging the people, like the judge, like the judges that we read about in the book of Judges throughout Israel's history. And Jethro is advising him. He observes the ministry that Moses has. He advises him about better practices. And then Moses heeds his father-in-law's advice. Let's read Exodus chapter 18 together. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Israel and for for Moses and for Israel as people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Moses' wife, Zipporah, after he had sent her away, and her two sons, of whom one was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. The other was named Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was camped at the Mount of God. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Then Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, and he bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had befallen them on the journey, and how the Lord had delivered them. Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. So Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh, and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. 
And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God. It came about the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood about Moses from the morning until the evening. Now when Moses' father-in-law saw, saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge, and all the people stand about you from morning until evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, it comes to me. And I judge between a man and his neighbor, and make known the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you are doing is not good. You will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you, for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me. I will give you counsel, and God be with you. You be the people's representative before God, and you bring the disputes to God. Then teach them the statutes and the laws, and make known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work they are to do. Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. Let them judge the people at all times, and let it be that every major dispute they will bring to you, but every minor dispute they themselves will judge. So it will be, so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all these people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. They judged the people at all times. The difficult dispute they would bring to Moses, but every minor dispute they themselves would judge. Then Moses bade his father-in-law farewell. And he went his way into his own land. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Excuse me for a moment. Godly fathers use the influence God gives them in order to spread the knowledge of God. By example, by the example of Moses and Jethro, we learned that godly fathers must do this in two primary ways. First, fathers guide their families by living a life of faith. Fathers guide their families by living a life of faith. How is this evident from the example of these two men? Well, at the very beginning, you see in Jethro the pursuit of personal knowledge of God. What does he say right at the beginning? Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done. And what does he do in verse 5? He seeks it out. He comes to hear more himself. He's curious. He seeks it out at the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, where the people are about to meet God. And right off the bat, I believe it's true that it takes faith to pursue the knowledge of God. We can't see God. We may hear of him, but we must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. And as 
prayer to the invisible God takes great faith, so too does continually pursuing the knowledge of God and the Word. It takes faith. And Jethro is an example of the pursuit of the knowledge of God. But we may also follow the example of these fathers in living by faith by, as Moses does, remembering God's promises and protection. There's this insertion of Moses' testimony given in the names of his sons. He had named his sons according to his own personal testimony, what was going on in his own life while he was in exile. He had gone to the desert. He had met all of these shepherdesses shepherding their father's sheep and had driven away those who were trying to uh, take advantage of them and steal their sheep. He watered their flocks and they went back and told their father and their father said, go get that man. And they bring Moses and he, Jethro, gives his daughter Zipporah to Moses. And then Moses learns to be a shepherd for the next 40 years of his life. Many have noted that he spent 40 years learning in the court of Egypt how to be a king. And then he learned for 40 years on the backside of a desert how to be a shepherd. And then, after 80 years, he was ready for 40 years of being the shepherd king of Israel. But he had sons. And he named his first one. I had been a sojourner in a foreign land. God had given Moses promises at the very beginning that he would deliver his people from Egypt and that he would give them the land that was then still occupied by many foreign nations. And Moses lived by those promises, I believe. Moses, of course, appears in what we call the great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And it says of all of these saints in Hebrews 11, if you'd like to turn there, Hebrews 11, verse 13. Moses, of course, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. But Hebrews 11, verse 13 says of all of these, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Back in Exodus 18, we see this as Moses' testimony, too. He named his son Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner, an exile in a foreign land, certainly an exile from Egypt in the the Sinai Peninsula, which was not his home. But he knew Egypt wasn't his home either. He was looking to the promise. He was living by faith. But he had two sons before he went to Egypt. And the other was named Eliezer. For he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. This was the confidence that Moses took back with him after 40 years in the wilderness. That God will deliver me, even as he will deliver his people. 
God has called me to lead them out, and I will surely go out with them. He had the same faith that Jacob and Joseph had, even to give orders concerning their bones that they should be taken out and buried in the promised land. Moses was a man of faith. He was living by God's promises with his eyes on eternity. He was living by God's word with his hope set on God's salvation. He was remembering God's promises and God's protection, and he is an example of a life of faith. And then you see these interactions that are sprinkled throughout this chapter that really are a good example to us of how to interact with loved ones. As Jethro and Moses also demonstrate a kind of faith in how God designed things to work by preserving godly relationships. There's, of course, this general concern for the welfare of the family. Jethro is bringing back his daughter and his grandsons, who no doubt he loved having with him. But Matthew Henry notes that what Peter writes, husbands are to dwell with their wives, and we know the rest of the verse says, according to knowledge, but they are to dwell with their, li- their wives. That's how it's supposed to work. Moses planned to, to send his wife and his sons away from those who may have tried to kill them. That wasn't intended to be permanent, and Jethro knows this, and so he returns them. But then you see not just a general concern for the welfare of the family, but particular respect and care between these men. Jethro announces his coming. He gives notice of his coming. The son-in-law, Moses, shows great respect for his father-in-law. There's mutual concern and interest in one another's health and well-being. There's personal acquaintance between them and joy at one another's presence. This is all good example. But then, in Moses' personal testimony to his father-in-law, we see, again, Moses' faith as he proclaims to others God's providence and his salvation. Verse 8, Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had befallen them on the journey, and how the Lord had delivered them. And here I see three points that Moses has thought deeply about God's work in the world. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to Egypt. And I say that Moses has thought deeply about God's work in the world because God has repeatedly, to this point in Exodus, he has repeatedly told Moses that he intended to rescue his people so that many would come to know him as the one true, living, unique, glorious God. And if you look for references to this, God did wonders. He says in Exodus chapter 7, verse 5, so the Egyptians would know God as the Lord, so that Pharaoh himself, Exodus chapter 9, verse 14, would know that there is no one like God in all the earth. This is why God is doing the plagues. This is why God is rescuing his people. Chapter 10, God was doing these things so that Moses and all Israel would tell their kids and their grandkids how God made a mockery of Egypt and performed many signs so that they would know God as Lord. This had, God had a view towards the people of Egypt, towards Pharaoh himself, towards his own people who needed to fear him and to tell future generations. And Exodus chapter 9, verse 17 in order to proclaim my name 
through all the earth. God has said this. God wants everyone to know his greatness. He wants the knowledge of him to spread. This is what he's doing in the world. God is zealous to receive what is rightfully his. Jealous, even, as a husband would be jealous over the affection of his wife, which is rightfully his. What is rightfully God's? What is he right to be jealous for? The worship of his creation. God deserves to be worshipped, to be made famous, to be made to appear big and glorious and awesome and good. Why? Because he is all of those things. God acts towards men in such a way as to show that to them. And he saves people. He delivers them in order to demonstrate his power and his grace and his majesty and his sovereignty. And therefore, he deserves to be talked about and to be worshipped by his people and by all people. This is why God will be right to judge all people in the end. Because they have failed to worship him if they have never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. This is what God is doing in the world. Saving people who will worship him. That's what he was doing then too. God rescued Israel so that they would be his people, his special people. And so that he could be their God and so that they would worship him in a way that is appropriate for him to be worshipped. That's what we're reading about in the rest of the book of Exodus. But it wasn't just for them. God did all this in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. He intended this message to be spread throughout all the earth through Israel. And here with Jethro, we see the beginning of this. The priest of Midian. Seeking out the one true God. And I believe as Moses speaks of all this to his father-in-law, Moses is doing this knowing this is God's program. God hasn't just done this just because. God is on a mission to make people worship him as he is right to do. And if we take this as an example for fathers, and I believe we can, to apply it to ourselves, godly fathers recognize that God is at work in the world for his glory, through the church especially today, to save people for his glory, people who will worship him with grateful hearts. Fathers think about this, about how and where God is working, and then they think about how they can be engaged in what God is doing in the world. In their own family, to see that come about in their own house, but also to be at work with God, cooperating with him as he works through the church. Moses had thought deeply about God's work in the world, and so he speaks to his father-in-law. He tells him all that God had done, all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and all the hardship that had befallen them on the journey. Moses had also thought carefully about the difficulties that had been overcome. What difficulties had they faced already? They had faced a stubborn, cruel Pharaoh, a terrible enslavement, unreasonable expectations, an army that pursued them, being defenseless, an impassable sea in front of them, 
predatory nations around them, lack of food, lack of water, complaints among the people. But how had all this and more been overcome? With the help of their God. And so too had Moses thought deeply about God's salvation. All that God did and how the Lord had delivered them. He is a God of deliverance. And if you read the rest of the Bible and trace out this theme of the Exodus, you realize that the two towering events in Scripture that really are, are somewhat parallel to one another is the Exodus of Egypt, Exodus of his people out of Egypt, and God's salvation of sinners from sin, bringing them out of darkness into light, rescuing them as his people, God is a God of salvation. This is Moses thinking about what challenges they had faced and how God had delivered them from all of them. God is a Savior. He had done this by providence, by direct intervention, by miracles, by great shows of strength and creativity. And Moses proclaims this to his father-in-law. All of the things that God had brought them, not to, but through. It's apparent from really just history, any movement in history. The generations that have the greatest conflict over things that matter have the greatest appreciation for those things that matter. Isn't this true? Those who fought for freedom, really in any war, for our country, have a great appreciation for the cost of freedom, don't they? Or if you study church history, even in this century in our country, those who fought for the truth of the Bible against modernism had a great appreciation for what it took to protect the truth, didn't they? But isn't it also true that the next generation tends to forget if they're not told? It can all be forgotten in a single generation such that they take for granted the things that they've been given because they didn't have to work for them. And they trample them. You see this just about in every sphere of human existence. If we don't face conflict over things that matter, we tend to take those things for granted. And if parents shelter their children from all of the difficulties which they themselves have fought, to protect for their children, as is right for parents to do, but never bring their children to recognize how God has delivered them in all of those things, they're likely to forget. And they're likely to despise those precious things, those precious pieces of their heritage that their parents have given to them. And the privileges and the responsibilities that they have to carry them on. Moses noted the difficulty and the deliverance from God. It wasn't just some sovereign right like some spoiled prince might just be given and then spit on like it was nothing. He knew that it was hard won and he wanted to communicate that so that they wouldn't forget. Fathers, we must bring our children to know our God as a God of deliverance for he is their only source of true help when we're gone. I believe also, just by way of application, challenges, difficulties in our lives, and our lives are full of difficulty. We live in a a fallen world, a broken world. We're never going to not know 
hardship and heartache and obstacles. And we'll waste our lives wishing it to be another way. But challenges are, in fact, opportunities to see God work and to see how he will work if we're watching. And I believe godly fathers must lead their families by watching and noting the challenges that we face and the ways the Lord provides and delivers. We must do everything in our power to remind our families of how God has overcome the the innumerable difficulties that we face throughout our lives. Because if we're not doing it, who will? And most especially, I made this reference to God's deliverance, his, his salvation. He, he intends to be known as the God who brought his people out of Egypt throughout the whole Old Testament. And then it's compared in the New to God rescuing his people from sin. Most especially, shouldn't we celebrate the deliverance God has given us from sin? That's the greatest difficulty we face, the the one that we could never overcome ourselves. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are blind. We're incapable of coming to God. In fact, we are hostile towards God if we do not accept the Lord Jesus Christ, disobedient to him, enslaved in our sin. But when God draws a person and makes him alive in Christ and opens his blind eyes and gives him a new heart, that is the greatest deliverance that we could ever speak of. But it takes faith to live this way and to testify this way. But living by faith, as we get back to Jethro, that isn't just meditating on it for ourselves and what we've experienced and what God has done in us, but also, I believe Jethro is an example of rejoicing in God's salvation to others. In verse 9, he hears this report, and Jethro rejoices over all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. This isn't something that he had experienced himself, just he's hearing it from his son-in-law, but he is right to rejoice in the deliverance of God from slavery and oppression. Why? Because this is exactly what Jesus described his kingdom as like. In Luke 15, the kingdom parables, or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, Jesus says, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It is a joyful thing to celebrate when God rescues sinners. It's a godly thing to do, a godly thing to pursue, and part of a life of faith. And I trust this is a matter of prayer for us, that God would be saving people, setting them in right relationship to himself, as they believe in Jesus Christ. But then these men exemplify a life of faith as they praise God above all others. This is on the lips of Jethro. Jethro said, Blessed, in verse 10, be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh. He's speaking this, first of all. He's praising God by his spoken testimony, and we do well to do the same, fathers especially. He's verbally testifying to God's praise. And again, it's praise 
to God as the deliverer, the God of salvation. And he's not just the God out there, but the God that he knows by personal acquaintance now, personal knowledge. In verse 11, he says, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. He admits it. He can't deny it. The God of Israel is greater than even his own gods. He's a priest, isn't he? Your God's greater than my God. I can't deny it. He's incomparable in his greatness, unmatched in his strength, peerless in his ability to rescue his people and to get glory over men and nations, even an arrogant man like Pharaoh. This is the God that we serve. And Jethro says he has irrefutable evidence. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. Those who were haughty, thought they were in control, thought they could treat the people of Israel any way that they wanted, they were utterly destroyed. They were shattered. How else can you explain this, he says. Jethro knows. He has a personal knowledge of God. Now I know. And this, too, is part of a life of faith, this kind of praise to God above all others. I heard someone say once that our praise of God will only go as high as our knowledge of God goes deep. If we have a shallow personal knowledge of God and his ways, we will have a shallow praise of God. We'll have a stunted praise. And fathers, we must know God personally for ourselves, not by, not by proxy, but by personal acquaintance. This is part of living a life by faith and exemplifying for our children and our families a life of faith, to know God and to testify of him. This is the greatest privilege that we have in this life. But then Jethro invites others to do this as well. In verse 12, they hold a feast together. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with him. The thing that's striking about this verse is that Jethro, a priest of Midian, a foreign nation, is worshiping God. And who does he bring with him? We can suppose uh, Aaron and Moses, but with all the elders of Israel. If you look across the page in chapter 17, the people are complaining about not having water. They're quarreling with Moses, apparently coming close to trying to execute him and return to Egypt. Moses prays to God. What does God say in verse 5? The Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. And take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I'll stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. You shall strike the rock and water will come out of it and the people may drink. And he does so. And it's proof that God is among them. Who needed a little bit of proof about who was in charge? The elders of Israel. And who is this foreigner now? probably unwittingly, inviting to a worship service in praise of the God who has delivered them repeatedly, the elders. They were evidently among the grumblers, and they had experienced all of this themselves. And this is certainly an irony. And here comes a foreigner who's only heard about this, and he knows that it's right to worship God for this. What a rebuke this must have been to these men. 
But here in the opening half of the chapter, I believe an application we can take is that fathers, <clears throat> we must lead our families to worship God for his salvation, for his deliverance, by remembering how he is delivered, by meditating on it ourselves, and by talking about it. God desires that we would lead our families in a life of faith. The topic, of course, has been worshiping God for his deliverance, the salvation that God brought to Israel by his mighty hand. And Jethro is noting that from a distance. He's seeking it out. He's rejoicing in it. He's exalting God for it, worshiping God with others. And Moses, too, is living it out as he names his children according to God's promises of deliverance. He's recounting all of God's wondrous works to his father-in-law and praising God for his salvation. This is how these men lead their families and lead those with whom they have influence because this is how they lead themselves. And we'll we'll do well to note their example. So Moses and Jethro are examples of men who believe God and live by faith in him and his words. But also, they lead their families by modeling a life of wisdom. The emphasis here in the second half of the chapter is on the statutes and the laws of God, which Moses taught the people and judged between them based on. So, really... Maybe you could say we're talking about a life of righteousness according to God's law, but I call it a life of wisdom because Scripture is clear that wise living is righteous living. Job 28, 28 says, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. This is, this is the essence of the fear of the Lord, the life of wisdom. And this is, in fact, what God gave the law to Israel for. When Moses is giving the law again in Deuteronomy Chapter 4, verse 5, Moses is speaking to the people and he says, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Moses says, for what great nation is there? that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Where did Solomon get all his wisdom? He confesses, certainly it's from God. God made him wise, but much of his wisdom is rooted in the law. When you read it and you compare it to Exodus and Deuteronomy, you see that it's God's wisdom that he gave to Israel, that they could know for themselves. And these men are living by it. Moses is, certainly. He's teaching it. He's seeking it out himself. And Jethro is seeking to spread its influence. So here at the beginning, you see Moses laboring hard in service to God. And Moses is, he's diligently working to spread the righteousness of God to the people. Verse 13, it came about the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood about him from morning until evening. He's giving his time and his energy to promoting God's righteousness. And of course, hard work is part of a life of wisdom. Solomon writes, Go to the ant, O sluggard. 
observe her ways and be wise. And here, in the case of Moses, it's work to serve God. And that's an example to all of us. That's wisdom. But he's knowing and seeking God's will. He's explaining to his father-in-law when he questions him. The people are coming to Moses because Moses knew God. They they knew who would give him justice. They knew who their leader was. Proverbs 15, 7 says, The lips of the wise spread knowledge. That's Moses. He's wise. And Moses knew where to get wisdom to lead the people. He went to God. Moses, Moses knew God's will, and he sought God's will, and that made him a just judge. But Moses is also, you could say, leading a life of wisdom as he teaches God's law, not just giving righteous judgments, but he was teaching the people, it says in verse 13. He was judging them, and then in verse 16, when they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I judge between a man and his neighbor and make known the statutes of God and his laws. And Jethro refers to this later as well. What is he doing? How is he doing what he's doing? He's offering judgments in conflict. Apparently there was a lot of conflict. And if you think about even our own court system, I was doing some looking into how many different kinds of courts we have. And there are limitless kinds of courts. No doubt many of you are more familiar with that than I am. But I even found that Montana has a water court. Who would have thought? But he's, he's, he's the court. He's offering judgments in conflict over everything. And if you read the rest of the law, there was a lot to arbitrate. He's giving wisdom in decisions. There are disputes referenced six times. He's judging seven times in this chapter. You may have uh, in your margin, it's not disputes, it's matters. It could be, it's not necessarily always conflict, but there's decisions that need to be made and fairness that needs to be judged by. But then also, there's directed moral teaching is what he's doing. He's making known to them. He's teaching God's statutes and laws, it's said twice. And he's an example to them. To the judges who would come later in Israel's history. Certainly to fathers who would come after him. This is what Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 6 in the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. He was an example to the judges of Israel. He was an example to the fathers of Israel, teaching God's law. Moses is showing by example how fathers were to be leading their families in relation to the will of God, the word of God, teaching them diligently. Why is this important in the context? Well, God is about to give the law, and his people needed access to it. He wanted all of his people to know it. He didn't want them to be ignorant of it. And this is how he intended them to be governed once they got into the land, according to Judges, Deuteronomy 17. And isn't it striking 
Here's this interaction. There's a question. Why are you doing this? Why are you alone? Moses explains. And then Moses' father-in-law gives him counsel. He gives wise counsel. And Moses gives a wise response, doesn't he? They're both wise in how they're interacting. Jethro is wisely counseling how to give greater access to God's righteous judgments. He's giving his expertise and his experience to spreading God's law. And though he does see Moses to be spread thin, his opening advice is actually to continue doing what he's doing, to continue leading the people in a life of wisdom. He says, what you're doing is not good. You will wear out both yourself and these people who are with you. But then he says in verse 19, uh, verse 19, you be the representative, bring the disputes to God, teach them statutes and laws, make, them, make known to them the way they're to walk and work. That's all that he's doing right now. And we could point back to Deuteronomy 4. This is their wisdom as they live according to God's law. But if he keeps going on the course that he's going, the consequence of there being only one Moses for all of Israel at least 600,000 men plus women and children, it says, is that they'll get worn out too. Not only Moses. They have a shepherd, but when they can't get access to their shepherd effectively, they don't have one. And when they can't get justice quickly, they'll get worn out trying to fight for it. Because, as it says in Ecclesiastes, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. And you see that, don't you? When there's delay and delay and delay, and there's no enforcement, there's no accountability, the bad ones are emboldened. And that would happen to the people. And that's even what Jethro is concerned with. If you do this and God so commands you, verse 23, the end of it, all these people also will go to their place in peace. This is how they'll maintain peace. So he advises setting up this system of courts and upright judges, you could say. And it's important. We won't take the time to look at their qualifications, but they needed to be upright men who lived the law themselves and weren't taking bribes. But we see Jethro's wisdom as a commendable, commendable example and advisor, especially as a father-in-law. He observes what Moses is doing, the text says. He asks a question about what's going on. He listens to his son-in-law. He evaluates what's going on. He gives his, his assessment of it. He advises. And then in the end, you notice about this plan, he submits it all to God, verse 23. If you do this thing and God so commands you, He's not full of his own ideas. and He's a wise, humble example here. And God so commands you. I believe this will be the effect that it will have, he says. And then, of course, Moses carefully implements all of this. And in this way, and in this way he is also a humble and wise ruler. He's working hard from dawn until dusk. He's judging righteously in every case. He's remaining accessible to the people. He's staying grounded in God's holy law. He's listening humbly to someone who is his better in this. And then he implements sound advice. And that is the example of a wise man. 
These men are living a life of wisdom. And they're modeling a life of wisdom. And we too must lead our families, fathers, by modeling a life of wisdom. Leading them to seek God for direction. Offering sound judgment, teaching, and counsel. We must ourselves live an upright and wise life. And even as Moses is concerned with going to the law and teaching God's law, what is our touchstone, fathers? What can be that which guides us? I think of a, this, this verses 18 and 19 are almost, in my mind, a, a parallel to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. What would Moses' guidance according to the law do? It would show the people God's statutes and laws and make known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work they are to do. We ought to be feeding our families on the word. And certainly very particularly to what Moses is dealing with, dealing with conflict and issues and matters in the home based on the love and the justice of God, as Moses does here. But then as Moses is teaching the people and teaching them to think according to God's law, so we too, in in the moral education of our family, can we be basing that? on God's faithfulness and righteousness as we find it in the word. This is the discipline and the instruction of the, of the Lord, especially as it regards the problems of life and the morals necessary for life. We're not, we're not people in a bubble who are never influenced by anything. We are subject to all kinds of influences, and God has given fathers to be this kind of influence on their families. These men are godly examples of how to wield influence in ways that please God. I think of, there's not much recorded about Moses and Jethro as fathers themselves beyond chapters like this. But I think of the the father of Proverbs who is pleading with his children, pleading with his son, hear your father's instruction. He's leveraging the influence that he has, pleading with his child to hear him because he has life experience and wisdom that God has given him that his son needs in order to live a life that's honoring to him. And all of that counsel is rooted in the scriptures. This is the wisdom of God. But as we, as we draw to a close, maybe just a word about influence. Maybe you'd say, well, I've blown it. I have failed. I let too much time pass. Or maybe you're not a father. Maybe you don't have this kind of particular influence. Well, there is hope. We see here the interactions of a man, not with his son, but his son-in-law. And they interact with great love and respect and humility, and wisdom. And they're both committing themselves to God. And this has great impact on the people that God gave to Moses to lead. You 
read, if you read in Deuteronomy 17, Moses' account of this time, it was effective for the people. We can't control the people that we have influence with, but we can love them. And perhaps God will give us some influence, even if it's not this exact influence of a father to a son. Perhaps the influence of example. Perhaps directed teaching. And no doubt, we will need great wisdom to know how to use whatever influence God gives us to wield. But if we have it, if God has given us influence, we must use it for good to promote God's glory in our family and to spread the knowledge of God. Godly fathers use the influence God entrusts to them to spread the knowledge of God. So what influence do you have? Is it changing as your children grow? No doubt. Are you attentive to what it is? Are you aware of what it is and how you should be wielding it? What are you doing with it? I trust that God will help each one of us to serve him with all of our might, including the use of the influence that God gives us at home. And praise the Lord that he is our perfect example. Because what one of us has not failed? But we can look to him as our perfect Heavenly Father for grace and help in time of need. Let's pray. Our Father, what a blessed thing it is to come to you as sons. We do seek you for grace because we need it. And we fail, and this responsibility is great. Help us to heed your word ourselves and then to live it out and to be good examples of faith and wisdom in our homes. Without you, we can do nothing. Help us to depend on you today and each day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.